Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. If you have uh, multiple kids or if you've ever dealt with groups of people, maybe you've led a team at work or you've, uh, you've had a, a team that you've had to take care of, you understand that sometimes you have to speak to different people differently. People learn, they understand, they are motivated differently, so you have to treat different people, well, different. And so over the past three weeks, we've been looking at Luke chapter 14 and 15, and in this, this, these, these chapters, Jesus is talking with a particular group of people. He's talking to the, the upper-class citizens. He's talking to the religious elite. He's talking to the Pharisees who have come together, uh, and they have criticized him for dealing with publicans and sinners and hanging out with publicans and sinners. And so they criticized him. And so Jesus takes some time, and he specifically tells parables to teach these Pharisees some lessons about what they believe about God. And while he's talking to these Pharisees, there's another group of people surrounding him. There's another group of people who are listening in. And this group, it's made up of people who follow him. It's made up of people who support him, who believe in him. Uh, and many, they have, many of them have come from some pretty difficult backgrounds. They are known as the publicans and sinners. And these are the people that the Pharisees have rejected. And these people that the Pharisees have rejected, that the Pharisees have said they're not good enough to, to be with us or to even talk to us, this group that, that the Pharisees want to have nothing to do, they have come to Jesus. And so when Jesus gets done addressing the Pharisees, they're still there, but he turns his attention to his followers. He turns his attention to those who have left everything to follow him, and he tells them a parable as well. So look in your Bibles in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse number 1. And he said unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore. 
And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, make yourselves friends of the mammon of the unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is of another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So, of course, this parable is a parable that we know as the parable of the unjust steward. And in this parable, there is something for everyone in whatever stage of their walk with God that they are in. If you are still trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing. You're still trying to figure out whether Jesus can be trusted and whether Jesus can be relied on and you're just dabbling in your, in your, in your walk with God. This story has the answer for you. If you're a believer, but you're not yet fully committed to Christ, you're just kind of dabbling your toe in. You're just kind of playing around with your walk with God. This story will help you commit fully to God. And if you're a fully committed follower, this story will make you praise God for his faithfulness to you. So after Jesus addresses the Pharisees, he turns to his followers and he tells them a story of a shrewd manager, a steward. Now the story is about a nobleman, a rich guy, a landowner. He finds out that his, his steward or his manager that he's put in charge of his affairs has cheated him, has been, un, been kind of unethical with his finances, And so he fires this manager. He calls the manager in. He fires him on the spot. But this this manager, this shrewd steward, this unjust steward, he does something amazing to save his job. And what he does is, is very creative, but it's also very unethical. And so he does something to save his job, but what he does is highly unorthodox, and it's very unethical, but the landowner praises him for what he does. So this, he, what he does is, is he take, goes to everyone who owes the landowner money and he makes deals with them to cut their debt, to lower their monthly payment, to lower the rent that they owe to the, land, to the landowner. And he's never asked the landowner's permission to do this. And of course, you know, your land, somebody who you think represents your landlord comes to you and says, hey, we're going to cut your rent in half. You, of course, say, great, sign the paper and you're done. When the landowner finds out about this, he commends him. So instead of being angry with him, he praises him. And to be honest, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because in this parable, God is represented by the nobleman, by the landowner. So why would God praise someone for doing something unethical? So to understand this story, just like the rest of the Bible, you have to take it in the context of the culture of the day. See, we're viewing it through the lens of Scripture of what we know and how, we, how our culture operates. You've got to understand how the Middle Eastern culture and Bible times operated. So we meet a couple characters in this story. The first character we're introduced to is the landowner. He is a well-respected, wealthy man 
in the community. Everyone in the, in the community, they, they rent land from him and they pay him a portion of their crops for the privilege to work his land. And so the people in the area, they respect him so much that they come to him and tell him that the manager he has is cheating him. That the manager that he's put in charge is being unethical with his money. And so the master, he calls in the cheating servant and he confronts him with the accusation. Now at this point, according to the culture and according to the law of the day, he could have had the manager thrown in jail. But he doesn't. He fires him. And that's a gracious act. Now, if you've ever been fired, you probably don't think it's very gracious when they fire you. But when the option is you're fired or you're in prison, fire's a great deal. And so this manager, he could have been thrown in jail. He could have been, had a lot of punishment put on him. But the, man, the landowner just fires him. The second character we meet is, of course, the manager. And he is, he is hired to manage the landowner's assets. And what he does is his job is to negotiate and administer contracts between the landowner and the peasants that work the land, the people that work the land. But he mismanages them. He makes deals that benefits himself. He embezzles money from his master. The third group we meet are the peasant farmers that are indebted to the landowner. Each of these people, each of these men, they have negotiated with the landowner through the manager for a certain number of acres that they're able to work. In exchange for the right to work this land, the master would get a specific amount of their crops. Now, it's these farmers that ratted out the landowner. They hate him because of the way he's cheating them too. He's cheating the landowner, yes, but they like the landowner they respect the landowner. This guy's cheating them, so they're, they're tired of being ripped off, so they rat him out to the landowner. And as the landowner calls the manager in, he asks him about the accusations that are leveled against him. He's careful to, to what he says. He doesn't say, I know what you've done, or I know what, what's going on. When he brings him in, he says, what's this I hear about you? He say, people have been saying, what, what, what's going on? What, what's, what's happening with my finances? Now, the steward, he doesn't answer. He just stands there silently because he doesn't know what the master knows. As a parent, have you ever called your kids in and said, I, I know what you did, and they start ratting them themselves about other stuff? Happens to us all the time. They're, they're, they're stupid about it like that way. I'll call them in, I know what you did. Well, I didn't mean to, but he did it first. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And they tell me, God had no idea about that. And so that's what's going on. The manager, he doesn't want to let the landowner know exactly what's going on. It happened to me when I was about, I think I was about 20 years old. I was uh, driving home from work one night, and uh, I got pulled over. And it took me a while to notice the cop was back there because the car I was driving. Uh, you ever, you know, heard the expression, drive the car till the wheels fall off? Well, the car I was driving, I, I was determined to drive it till the wheels fall, it fell off. And they were, they were about the last thing to fall off. I was driving an old 1990 Escort, and uh, the rearview mirror had fallen off, so I didn't have a rearview mirror. I knocked off the other side mirror, so I, the, the, other, the passenger side didn't have a mirror for some reason. So I, I had no mirrors. The passenger door wouldn't shut and wouldn't latch, so instead of welding it shut, I had like a, a, a seat belt wrapped through the door, and it was kind of flopping the breeze sometimes. It didn't have any taillights whatsoever. Uh, the horn didn't work. It was... It was it, was, it got me from point A to point B. I paid no payments on it. Tax, I'm like, I'm going to drive this till it blows up. 
And so one night I'm going home and I just happen to take a curve and I notice blue lights in the back and I turn around and look and there's a cop back there and he pulls me over and he says, do you know how long I've been following you? I said, well, no, sir, I really don't. I'm sorry. I didn't notice you back there. And he's, he's mad, obviously. And he's like, do you know why I pulled you over? And I didn't want to answer. Because I'm going to say, well, because I have no mirrors, because my door doesn't shut, because I got no taillights. So I didn't want to start naming stuff. So I'm like, no, sir, you were speeding. Okay, I'll take that. And so I'm like, don't look around the car too closely, officer, because we're going to both be here for a while. But this is the situation. Basically, the landowner calls in the manager and says, what's been going on? What are you doing? And the manager doesn't want to answer because he doesn't know what the landowner knows. So he's, he's silent. He just sits there. Does he know everything that he's been done or does he know some of them? So he, he doesn't want to confess what isn't known. So, the master, so he stays quiet and the master dismisses him, says, you can go. You are no longer my steward. He fires him. Now the steward doesn't say anything to defend himself. And his silence says a lot to the master. His silence says he's guilty. He's done wrong. He's, he's been unethical with my finances. He's been disobedient. And so the, the steward is also expecting judgment from the master. And it's amazing when he leaves, he doesn't focus on getting his job back. And as we'll see in the story, what he does, he doesn't even do to get his, his job back. He does it for selfish reasons. But he doesn't focus on how to get his job back. He's focused on his future and how he's going to survive. The master's told him he's fired, and now he has to turn in the company books to reveal what he's been doing. <clears throat> and as he's leaving, of course, he's, he's thankful he's not being thrown into jail, but he still has a problem. The law stated that not only could the master throw him in jail, but the steward was responsible for paying back any money he had taken. But, and so now he, he may be in debt to the master, he may be in legal trouble because of the master. On his way to get his books, he's thinking about what he does. Without his job, he's hopeless. Look again at verse number 3. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship I cannot dig. To beg, I'm ashamed. He goes, What am I going to do for a living? I, I, can't, I can't dig ditches. I'm too, I'm too proud to beg. What am I going to do for a job? Then look at verse 4. I am resolved what to do that when I am... Put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So here's what he's saying here. He's saying, I've got to do something that makes everyone in the community not hate me. Because I need one of them to hire me. I need someone else to give me a job. So I've got to do something to make sure that I've got a good name. Because all the community knows how wicked he is because they turned him in. So it's like, I've got to do something so that the people in the community have favor on me and they look favorably on me and so that when I need a job, they'll give me a job. And so his plan, it revolves around his trust of the master's mercy. Now already the master has shown him incredible mercy through the steward. He didn't throw him in jail. He didn't reprimand him. He didn't demand that he pay back the debt. He is generous. He is merciful. And this steward, he stakes his future on the master's mercy, the master's grace, and the master's reputation. And so what he does is he quickly goes to everyone who rents land from the master. Now, they don't know that he's been fired yet, and he's hoping they don't find out. And so he goes to every one of them, and he lowers their debt. 
He goes to one and says, what's your rent? Well, my rent's uh, 100 barrels of oil. Well, make it 50. And he, he lowers the rent that they're supposed to pay for the, for the year. Now, this wasn't unheard of for landowners to lower the rent of the tenants, but it typically was the tenants came to the landowner and asked to lower their rent. Maybe they, they had a plague come through, they had a famine, they had a drought, and they weren't able to make as much money as they had previously thought. And so they come to the landowner and say, hey, we, we just didn't make enough because of the, the natural disaster. Maybe there was a flood come through. And so we, they would beseech the landowner for mercy. The landowner never went to them and said, hey, I'm just in a good mood. Let's lower your rent. But that's what the steward is doing. He's going to everybody and saying, hey, you know what? I've been working on this for a while. I talked to the landowner. I finally convinced him. And you know what? He said that you've, you've been such a faithful tenant. You've been so good. He wants to give you a break. Let's lower your rent this year. And so every one of their, the, their people get their rent lowered. Every tenant has their rent lowered by 500 an area. That equals about $50,000 in today's money. That's a huge cut in your rent. And so he, and he's, he's telling them this was the landowner's idea. So they're signing the paperwork, and as they're signing the paperwork, what do they think of the landowner? Well, they love the landowner. He's the best landlord they've ever had. He's, he's already well-respected, and now he's cutting our rent in half, and so everyone is, is thinking highly of the landowner, thinking good of the steward, because he's telling them it was his idea. And so everyone assumes it's the master's idea. He did this out of the kindness of his heart. So now the master... The landowner, he is the town hero. Everyone loves him because of what this shrewd steward did. So the steward, he makes all those deals and he rushes back to the master. And the master knows what he did as soon as he gets there. Look at verse number six. Uh, no, verse number seven. Uh, no, verse number eight. <clears throat> Look at all of them. And then the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. So the master, the word spread. He's starting to get people coming in saying, Hey, I heard, you know, so-and-so is praising your name there because of what you did. And the people are shouting his name in the streets. And people are just thanking him as he's walking. So he knows what's going on. And so he comes to the, so the steward comes back to the master. And he knows what he did. Word is spread through the town about the benevolence of the master, about his goodness, about his mercy. Everyone is singing his praises now, the master has two options. He can tell everyone that the steward acted wrongly, that he didn't have the authority to do that, and everyone's rent is back what it was supposed to be. Now, he didn't do anything wrong. The master hasn't done anything wrong. He didn't, he didn't cheat anyone. He didn't hurt anyone. But if you get a call from your bank saying, we're going to cut your mortgage in half, and then the next day, the bank calls you back and says, psych, we're kidding. It was a mistake. It was a clerical error. It wasn't our fault. Someone shouldn't, someone shouldn't have told you, you're going to hate your bank. And so the landowner can say, he, didn't do, he wasn't supposed to do that. Everyone still pays the same amount of rent. Now the landowner's the bad guy. Now everyone hates the landowner. And he didn't do anything. Or he can let the steward keep his job and commend him for what he did and let people think that he was a good, honorable Merciful man, so he can keep quiet and accept the praise. So what does he do? He turns to the steward, and he commends him for what he did. Again, look at verse number 8. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely, for the children of the world are in this generation wiser than the children of light. So I know we know this parable 
as the parable of the unjust steward, but it's really the parable of the merciful master. At many points in this parable, the master could have seriously punished the steward. He could have seriously punished the townspeople or, or even at least made them mad at him because he, he just put their rent back what they wanted to do. But in a lot of instances, at many different times, this master showed incredible mercy. And the steward wasn't shrewd because of the deals that he made. He was shrewd because he trusted the master. He knew the master. He knew about his mercy. And he trusted the master to be merciful. So following these, this, this parable, Jesus gives some verses. And he gives three lessons that we are to learn from this parable. So here's the first lesson we're supposed to learn. You only have one life. Invest it wisely. Look at verse number 9. And I say to you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitation. This is the verse I was talking about this morning. I literally spent six hours studying this week because it made no sense to me. It's typically a verse I just gloss over in my reading. And it's just, it's one of the, oh, it's just stuck in a story. It's between these two other good verses. I don't really pay attention to it. And I just kind of gloss over it and ignore it and don't really think about it. And it looks to me, if you look at first reading, it looks like Jesus is saying, you better make friends with wicked, wealthy people so that you always have a place to stay. And I'm like, that, that, that can't be what God is saying there. God can't be saying, go find wicked rich people and make them your friends because they know how to have fun. And so it took me a lot of time, a lot of commentary, looking at the Greek, original Greek, did not help. And so I had to read a lot of commentaries, do a lot of study, do a lot of prayer about what this verse really meant. So what is Jesus really saying? After a lot of study, here's the conclusion I have come to. Here's what God is saying in this verse. You only have one life. So use it to build friendships with people who can look at you one day in heaven and say, I'm here because of you. And also use your material resources in a way that will further the kingdom of God. Invest your life in what really matters. And the only thing that really matters is eternity. So what God is saying here is all our friends that we have, now, look, we talked this morning, and we should, we should make sure we have godly friends. We should make sure that we are surrounding ourselves with people who love God, who are followers of God, who, who want to do better for God. And so they help us and encourage us. But there's a lot of people out there who are lost and dying and going to hell. And if we don't make friends with them, how are they going to get the gospel? Now, I'm not saying go out drinking with them and partying with them. I'm not saying do that, you know. I've heard people say, well, Paul said, be all things to all men, so I'm going to go to the bar and be with the drunks of the drunks. No. But we're kind to them. We befriend them. You know, your neighbors that aren't saved, you know what you, know what you could do? I know it's an odd thought. You can invite them to a cooking at your house. You could get to know them. You could use these friendships you're making with unsaved people to get the gospel to them. You can invest your friendships to see people saved. But also your, your, your resources. Not just money, but everything God's blessed you with. 
You know, maybe you've got a car and you can be a blessing to help take an unsaved co-worker to work every day. You're giving them a ride. You're just, you're just giving them a lift to work. But you know what you can do while you're giving them a lift to work? You can listen to some good Christian music. You can talk about God. Don't preach at them. Don't, don't pull over and say, I'm not getting out of the, you're not getting out of this car until you get saved. But talk to them about God. Love them. Use your life to build God's kingdom in every part of your life. You know, we like to compartmentalize our lives. This is my God life. This section of my life is dedicated to God. This section of my life is dedicated to my family. This section of my life is dedicated to work. This section of life is dedicated to entertainment. Well, it's usually this part's entertainment, this part's God. But we keep our life in compartments. And what God is teaching here is it's all under one compartment. What can I use my life for to further God's kingdom? How can I use my friendships? How can I use my resources? How can I use my, my talents to reach people who may not be reached in any other way? And we have no idea who we may see in heaven one day that says, you know what, I'm, just, I'm here because you became my friend. Because you talked to me when no one else... Because look, we're, we are hurting people, but the world is hurting too. When we are hurting, you know who we turn to? We turn to each other. We turn to God. Who do they turn to? They turn to drugs and alcohol and sex and all this other stuff that doesn't help them. And so we can be someone who, when we see a hurting person, encourages them, talks to them, loves on them the way that God loved on us so that we can get the gospel to them. Because we have to use our life for what matters. When you understand what Jesus is saying, it makes you ask, what are you doing with what's been entrusted to you. Because if we're honest, all of us have unsaved friends. All of us have someone that we may not know that they're not saved, but we're like, eh. Well, first of all, why haven't we found out if they are or not? But they are in our life. They are put in your life. Maybe they're from work. Maybe they're from your neighborhood. Maybe they're your family. They were put in your life by God for you to resume with the gospel. And what are we doing with what God has entrusted us to. Are you investing in eternity or are we too busy investing in things for this world? Are you making friends to build his kingdom or are we making friends to build our own? You have one life, invest it wisely. Second thing God tells us is your investments determine your responsibility. Look at verse number 10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is also unjust in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? So this is what Jesus is saying. What do you want to be entrusted to with your life? What do you want God to entrust you with? What responsibility... Do you want to give God? Because look, a lot of times we'll, 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 uh, people in the church or we'll talk to people, you know, people will complain, I just don't have enough responsibility. Well, what are you doing with the responsibilities God's given you? You know, it's like at our house. You know, if, if my kids can't keep their bed made, I'm not going to give them more responsibility. I'm actually going to whip them until they make their bed and then make them have more responsibility. But you know what my point? At work, if you're late to work all the time and you're caught taking breaks too often, and you're just calling off, and you just, you're not doing a good job at work, why would your boss give you a raise? Why would your boss promote you? 
But if you're there, well, I'm just making minimum wage. Doesn't matter. You know why you're making minimum wage? Because you're not trying to make more. But if you're, you're there all the time, you're working hard, you're going above and beyond what's expected of you, that's when your boss gives you more responsibility. It's the same thing with God. God's like, if I've, if I've entrusted you with this amount of responsibility or these friends or this, this, well, this money, and you're not using it for what I need you to use it for, you're not investing it wisely, why would I give you anything more? So the principle behind this question is this. The wiser I invest what I have, the more will be entrusted to me. The wiser you invest the money God's given you now, the more money God will give you later. Look, let's just be honest. That's why so many of us, myself included, are poor. Because I do not invest my money wisely. So God's like, why would I give you a million bucks when you blow $100 every time you get it? I don't really blow it. I need a new gun. You know what I mean. Amen, DJ. It's not It's an investment in security or the future or whatever. But that's what God's saying. Why would I give you more when I can't trust you with the little that I've given you? Now, the point isn't that if you want a lot of money, then you should invest what you have wisely. But if you do invest wisely, you will end up with a lot of money. That's just the way finances work. The point is to make sure we are investing what we have been entrusted to wisely so God can entrust us with more so we can build his kingdom faster. We're entrusted, we, we invest what we've been given wisely now, so God will entrust us with more so we can you do more for his honor and his glory. It's a simple truth. God will not give us more responsibility until we invest wisely what he's already given us. And here's the third point that Jesus gives us. Invest in things that have eternal, eternal value. Look at verse number six, uh, 13. <clears throat> no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This verse asks the question, can I invest my life in two places at the same time? Can I work on my kingdom and God's kingdom at the same time? And the answer is no, you can't. You can't build your kingdom and try to build God's kingdom on the side. You can't effectively work to build each king. You, you can try, but both will suffer, and eventually you'll grow to resent the one, and the one most people grow to resent is God. Why am I spending my time building God's kingdom? I'm just going to skip. I'm going to quit church. I'm going to quit tithing. I'm going to quit doing all this, and I'm going to work on my life. I'm going to work on my kingdom and forget about God's. So we need to make sure that we are investing our lives in what we've been entrusted to, to build his kingdom. Because here's the truth. Jesus said, if we trust him with everything and, you know, if we, we, we trust him with all our heart and we, we lean out on our understanding, if we, we think of Matthew, uh, the, uh, all these things will be added unto you. Seek ye, yeah, thank you. I'm like, all these verses are coming to my mind and it's never the right one. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to us. If we spend our time focusing on building God's kingdom, investing what he's given us for his kingdom, for his honor, for his glory, he takes care of everything else. He takes care of all of our needs. He gives us what we need. He says, I'll take care of everything else. You just work on building my kingdom. So why would we invest in something God's already promised he's going to take care of? Invest everything you've been given, your life, 
your friends, everything. Invest what you've been given in his kingdom. The parable of the unjust steward teaches us that if we trust the master's mercy, our life can be invested for eternity. So you ask yourself if you are trusting his mercy or if you're trying to build your own kingdom. Invest what you've been given for his kingdom and his glory.